0: That's one for two is perfect. That means I just sprinkled it enough, but not too much. Yeah. That's what we like. One for two.
1: Yeah, sex is great. But have you ever had a one for two on a writer's podcast? <laughs> 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 a <one for> two. <laughs>
2: Hello, and thank you for tuning in to WGBC Podcast. We are a group of amateur authors sharing writing advice and critiquing each other's ongoing work. If you want to read along, you can find some of our work over on patreon.com slash wgbcpodcast. Today, we will be talking about research and Lance's book, Two Moons
0: Mercy. Take it away, Lance. Hi, everyone. So today I want to talk about research and uh, researching items in your book. And re- researching is uh, really important because we want to make sure our readers are invested in the story and we want our stories to be plausible and accurate, not just for the readers, but also for, also for us. Uh, it, it really is important to not kick our readers out of the story. So if, uh, suppose, for instance, you have a reader who knows a lot about horses and then you make a claim about, you know, this, you know, uh, Emily jumps on her horse and then rides a hundred miles in one day. Well, the person who knows about horses is immediately going to be kicked out of the story because that's not plausible and it's just not going to happen. And uh, you, but if you had researched it, you could have you would have known that and you could have found a way around it. Even if a reader is not an expert, though, they might be they might get the feeling that something's different, and uh, they could easily look it up themselves online and then find out and see that that uh, that it's wrong. So we really want to keep our users or we really want to keep our readers grounded in the story. It's important for us to write stories that just make sense. and that's one of the reasons we do research. Now I want us I want our stories to be plausible, not necessarily perfect. So uh, when I'm saying doing research, I'm probably recommending to look something up for twenty minutes or a half hour and then write your and then write your uh, your the section of your book. And you can always hand it to someone else afterwards. You can hand it to a friend or family member or post it online and ask an, ask an expert to look it over. In my current chapter, I had to research, um, uh, battle river crossing and urban warfare. And I don't have a military background, so I didn't actually know anything about these. And when I did research these things, um, there were a lot of things that I had assumed at the start before my research, which were completely wrong. And then the research told me a lot of things that that you would have to do if you were going to have a battle across a river and if you were going to do urban warfare. Uh, and these little things that I hadn't expected, these uh, these big and little things that I hadn't expected... I then constructed my chapter around those things. And this was actually really convenient and really nice because it made me feel more confident in my own content. But it also helped through wrinkles into my story. I had planned out my chapter, but now I had to change my plan. So my story became much more interesting and fleshed out because I had to account for these realities that I didn't know about originally. And we're not. And so when we're writing, we, we, it doesn't have to be perfect. I want it so that if an expert reads this section, they'll nod their heads and go, that's plausible. I don't need it to be perfect, but also, but most people aren't going to be experts. The other advantage of this is that the average reader is going to pick up on these things and they're going to notice these tiny little tidbits that they hadn't thought about either. Just like how I hadn't thought about them. For instance the ratio of, um, of numbers you would need to cross a river against a fortified position and stuff like that, and the ways you would do that. And the reader is now going to trust you more because you're going they're going to recognize that you did some research because it's going to make sense. It just might not have been intuitive for you off the start before you did your research. I really liked that I was able to add these little extra things that colored and wrinkled my story in ways I didn't expect uh, instead of just doing what uh, what I guess what were my assumptions, which were probably more boring and less interesting. Uh, this applied a lot to my last book, where my story had a bit of a unique astronomy to it, where there's a planet with two moons that um, that orbit that planet in a specific way. And I had to do a lot of research since I didn't know a lot about astrophysics just to make sure that I could write it in a way in which an astrophysicist might say, well, it's probably not very likely, but it is technically plausible. And since my story features some magic, um, I can definitely uh, round the edges with the magic. I thought of one uh, example of, uh, of research. Now, if something is the core of your story, you have to research it really well. It has to be really good. And if something's not the core of the story, then it just needs to be plausible. That's how I see it. So one example would be space lawyers. Maybe you're writing a story about an intergalactic civil war, but it's from the perspective of the lawyers that are dealing through the legal quagmire of the situation. If that's your story, you've got to be really good at law and you've got to really do your research to make sure that even though we don't really have space law in our world. You want it so that if a lawyer picks up your book and they read it, they would go, yep, that's probably what space law would look like. Now, if your story is about intergalactic civil war, but it's about a romance between two people on opposing sides of the conflict, and then there's one chapter where there's a legal dispute, well, there your le- your law doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be plausible so that if a lawyer happens to be reading your book, they'll go, well, it's close enough, but it's not a. they don't expect you to have a perfect in-depth analysis of it. So my conclusion is that research is really important, even for the little, stu- even for the little stuff in your book, um, and it can really, but it really adds a lot of color, and I think it adds a lot of unexpected benefits uh, when we're writing.
2: Yeah, I agree. Research is super important. I actually, I was listening to um, a podcast where he interviewed Chris Carter, the uh, creator of X Files, and he talks about like creating, like doing whatever you want, but. I think he called it like a bullshit sandwich. So you research one thing really well, you research another thing really well, and then you connect them with complete nonsense. So his example was like, there was this worm uh, unfrozen from a glacier sample. And and the glacier sample thing, it was, it was kind of a new technology that was going on when the episode was coming out, or the new advancement or something. And the worm thing had recently, <clears throat> there's some scary worm discovered in the Amazon at the time. And then he just linked them together to make his story cool and I think he even said uh someone approached him and was like oh have you heard about this glacier worm and he's like no I made that up And like no no I'm pretty sure it's real I think I read it somewhere like National Geographic I think that was true but uh anyways yeah you just have to sow the plausibility into your story I think that's completely bang on for what what research is for
1: yeah I totally agree with that as well um I like want to share a moment of like absolute ridiculousness when it comes to figuring out like authors did not do their research. And um, I'm calling on an author here because she called herself out. Um, but Kate Quinn and I've been reading a lot of Rome books again, obviously, because of my book. But Kate Quinn writes these kind of like Rome sweeping epic romance books and they're beautiful setting, great characters. And in one scene she has a character go out to a vomitorium and like vomit up his dinner so he can eat more at this like big feast and as a student of history and archaeology i was like what the hell man a vomitorium is not that a vomitorium is like a huge corridor like, think about when you go into, like, a sports arena and you walk in and all the people are kind of walking, like, the outside curved corridors to get, like, into the stands. That's what a vomitorium is. It's literally made to, like, vomit people out of the stands. Popularized by the Flavian Amphitheater, also known as the Coliseum, which basically was copied by every single architect, you know, that was making huge sporting facilities. And... That is a very easy thing to also research to make sure that's correct. Because if you hear the word vomitorium, you might take it like at its literal description. But, you know, it's an interesting word and it might be something you want to look into. So yeah, she actually ended up calling herself out and was like, that was such a silly mistake. Like my editors didn't catch it. I didn't catch it. And she's like, I still like 10 years after I published that book, I'm getting letters and emails and comments from people about the vomitorium. So it's just like a good lesson to if you don't know what something is, you can also take the time to research it and make sure you get it right because it just shows that you care about the people that are reading your book and, you know, you should care and just taking that little bit of extra time, like Lance has said, it it makes the story so much more believable and, and it's a, just a good habit to get into. So yeah, that was my little rant on that.
0: And experts are, people are usually willing to talk about the stuff they like. So usually you can find help from people. They'll often be willing to, to help you out.
2: I had a scene in my last book on like a cargo ship and I, I was a little bit nervous to write it because I have never been on a cargo ship. I don't know what they're like at all. And I literally just YouTubed cargo ship tour and like a cargo ship guy walked me through the cargo ship and showed me all the stuff and waved at everybody he passed. I'm like, "Cool, now I feel like I've been there." It took me 20 minutes to research.
0: Another one is um, if you're like having two people like in a fight scene uh, you might want to YouTube it first, just because what is in your head might not be what will what will really, what will really happen. But it's so easy to look up on on the internet.
1: Totally, um, the guys that write the Mandalorian, um, John Favreau, and the the name of the other guy is escaping me right now. Um, but they talk about when a character gets punched in the face. Like, getting hit in the face, if you are not, like, a boxer, you don't know how to take a hit, like, you're going down. It really freaking hurts. And so they joke because they're like, you can totally tell an actor that's going in for fight training that – has never taken a punch in their life and acting like falling down or, you know, like the way they act through that like is so incorrect and they actually have to teach them how to take a punch or like what it feels like to take a punch and how you're going to be feeling like in the immediate aftermath, like dizzy, maybe like pukey, nauseous, like it does not feel good to be hit in the face. So, um, that's something i come across sometimes in books where people can just take punches or kicks to the ribs You can't where I'm like just if you take a kick
2: and then look oh yeah
1: yeah 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 man if you take a kick to the ribs like you can't breathe for a good 10 seconds and I can say that because yeah I've like taken falls before and like you're on the ground for a good second before you can breathe again so that is also something I noticed. I think, yeah, definitely for fight scenes, you might want to look up what's happening or even talk to someone that has been in a fight if you've never had the privilege and they can share that with you. Well, a lot
0: a lot of this stuff is so easy to look up, but then we don't think about looking it up, right? Um, like I didn't look up astrophysics stuff at all when I was coming up with my book. It was only when I was like about to write it and I was like, oh, I got to figure this out. And it was way, way harder to make work than I thought. I did make it work, and thank goodness I did that before I started, because or else I would have to fix everything. I feel like we talked about it every week for like a
2: month, Yep. To try mm-hmm. to figure out how the moons would work, yeah. Or you'd come up with a new strategy and bounce it off of uh, me and Matt, and Matt yeah. was very good at poking holes in
0: your that's your what you moon need layouts. Yeah, you need people to poke oh, holes. Oh, that's great. In or else, or else, because readers will do it. So, you know, you have to be able to take that. And then workshop it instead of getting, instead of just feeling criticized or whatever. Um, And just, you know, none of us are perfect. None of us know everything. We just got to, and that's why we got to do our research just to make things make sense so that we can write the awesome stories we have in our heads, in in the, in the coolest way that makes the most sense.
2: I think you talked about this in another episode, but um, you, you said like, if you already are an expert on something try to sneak that into your story and and put in details about that so that when you're putting something else in your story without details people give you the benefit of the doubt on it
0: yeah yeah in the world building episode yeah
2: so yeah, if you're a lawyer definitely space lawyers, space lawyers yeah but if you're not a lawyer maybe skip the space lawyers
0: or learn about law i guess yeah. And the thing is, everyone's good at stuff. So you can, if you pick those things and you have your characters be competent at those things too, or be exploring those worlds as well, then you can, you can get those things to a level of accuracy that other people won't get. And readers will really like that.
1: Totally. The, the And this is like such a maybe left field answer, but um, there's a book called The Devil Wears Prada, um, which was a huge best selling hit. And the girl who wrote it uh, worked for Anna Wintour. And based the book off of her experience working as the personal assistant for the editor-in-chief of Vogue magazine. And, you know, you watch that movie and it all of it rings so true. All the requests, the things that the person needs. And, and it just, like, adds so much to the story as opposed to someone who would be like, you know, like – I I I'm just interested in the world of fashion and has never worked in it before or like knew someone closely that worked in it. Um anyway, I I just that um it's like what you're saying like right from your own experience, like you know, if you're thinking about writing a book, the things you've done in the past or like, you know, the experiences you've had, like those are good places to start for even developing a character. So, um and it always rings more true if you know more about it and you've had some cool experiences.
2: I totally agree. I think we're at that summary time,
0: if you don't mind, Lance. So in this chapter, we rejoin our second group of protagonists um, who are in the uh, jungles of Biranj. And they need to take a city because it has uh, one of, it has the only metal foundry for uh for uh for hundreds of miles and they need this so that they can make uh muskets to have a chance to fight this huge army and and they only have a couple of weeks to do it so they talk about how the river crossing the the town they need to take is across a river and uh they talk about how it's way too dangerous and they're going to need way way more numbers and people to do it and then General Jaska smiles mischievously, and we start the chapter. Uh, we skip all their planning, and we start right away in the battle. Uh, they execute the river crossing um, with, uh, with secrecy and guile. And we have point of view several point-of-view cl- characters. We have Muramat on the opposite side of the river doing stealth stuff. We have uh, Benoit with the catapults. We've got uh, contraptions to help them with the river crossing. And we've got some uh, fun tactics. And uh, once the monks uh, complete the crossing and use their muskets to to um, to basically take the take a beachhead, the enemy flees as soon as the monks arrive. And but we do see the enemy try to kidnap some monks. They seem to be avoiding trying to kill the monks and want to kidnap them alive. Uh, they do. The protagonists surround the city. And then they send in several squads to try to take just two buildings, the foundry and the warehouse. And they uh, we see some of their urban warfare, and they finally arrive at the foundry. And they go inside, and it's a trap. The, uh, the building has been filled with enemies who are holding rudimentary muskets that they had tried to build themselves. Um, and now we know one of the reasons that they tried to kidnap the monks, and that was to take their uh, ragefire ammunition. Uh, but all the enemy uh, muskets malfunction and explode, and it kills all the enemies uh, because their muskets were, uh, were no good. And this was foreshadowed throughout the chapter because we get to see some of the individual monks uh, talk about how, how much work and how much time they put in and how it was a uh, real art that their people had perfected over a thousand years. And only now the rest of the world was uh, learning about this. Once that ends, uh, we have a flashback interlude where the two Vision siblings are discussing. Uh, the Vision sibling Yevon is freaking out and uh, ViBA is not helpful and doesn't believe him that it's a real problem. Yevon does get her to admit that in some, in some theoretical situations, it would be okay to intervene in worldly matters. She begrudgingly agrees, but then immediately ends the connection kind of hanging up the phone uh, when he uh, suggests breaking their first law. And that's where I ended.
1: So I really enjoyed this chapter. And now sometimes when I hear the summaries on this podcast, I'm like, Ah, uh, yes, I think of something else. Um, because I, maybe I have some hot takes that I'll say for the end, but I really thought this was a good chapter. I thought it, it. What I really liked about it was that in the heat of action, we got these very small moments of like calm, so it didn't feel like we were going a hundred miles per hour the entire time, which I think is like a thing a skilled writer knows to do. Because even in the midst of like very intense action, we do need those little breaks so we can just pause collect ourselves gather our breath um and such um so we open with a sense of the type i wrote this because i thought it was interesting and i and it, it was stuck in my head and we open with a sense of the type of villain wallot is being he's the average the average person believes him is the line uh that kind of popped into my head while I was reading that. He's convincing, full of conviction. Um, m- reminded me of, you know, sleazy politicians maybe that are able to convince people of something that's only for their benefit. Um, so I think that's going to be very interesting when we eventually come face to face with him. We also are served with another reminder that time is ticking because the rage fire is growing. So, we maybe have only two weeks um, for our heroes to have a bit of the advantage here. It's also a nighttime ambush. So, I thought there were some really cool images um, you know, things burning, the reflections off the water. Uh, I could totally see it in my head. So, that's also just a praise of um, your setting the scene there, Lance. Um, so the soldiers are kind of swimming. Well, only a few soldiers are swimming through the water. And, um, I was getting excited by this point because I was like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And then Murray mad is discovered. And I was nervous because I thought, oh no, is this going to make the plan go sideways? But it looks almost like it's meant to like happen because then the actual fighting starts. And then, I don't have like super a lot of notes about very specific things because I didn't want to like look away from the screen and write down in my notebook. Um, But I did put down again, just another reason to love General Jaska here. He has so much integrity. He wants to be on the front lines, even though he's like been badly injured. And like, I just love this character so much. Um, I really hope nothing bad happens to him, though. I have a feeling something bad will eventually happen to him because the guy has nine lives and they're running out. I feel like they're just running out. Um, and then I, of course I had to pause because there's nothing like a kiss in the heat of battle. Oh, Ron and Hermione comes to mind. Um, I liked that. I thought the romance was well-earned and it had been, you know, boiling to this point, I think. And there's also... Moments like, I think, life and death like that definitely make people realize what's really important and what they actually want. And, oh my god, I might not get this chance again, so I better just give her a quick kiss or whatever. I thought I thought that was great, so well done. And so I want to note here that the enemy in this scenario is at a very great disadvantage because they do not have muskets. So they might have access to rage fire, Um, but the monks have been able to utilize it in a way that is very effective. And this becomes clear as, you know, they take the city and they are ambushed by enemy soldiers who have the muskets that take aim and fire, but don't work and end up doing damage to the enemy ranks, which was a bit of a twist there. I was like, oh, oh my God. You know, it, it was a moment of like, kind of fright for everyone there. Like I thought like all of our heroes were going to die. Um, but luckily the enemy does not know how to create an effective weapon yet for the rage fire. Um, I think it's very realistic that the monks hold the historical and cultural information on making these weapons. I like that there's like a religious aspect to creating a musket, you know, has to be done with respect. We got like a really cool peek into the culture of of the monks here because um you know, they talk about having to fashion, I think it was 16 muskets before you can actually make a good one. And um they have a lot of respect for what the rage fire is. That's very clear. And so I thought that was a cool little thing that you put in there as well. I also think this is likely why our enemies are trying to steal the monks, but I have another theory about that that be- just just now became apparent to me, but obviously the monks have access to the knowledge to create muskets and that is going to be needed by our enemy if they're going to even stand a chance in like the heat of battle with these people once again, so that is one reason. However, I think given what we know that's going on kind of like up north or sorry, wherever the map has like the other group of heroes um, that there's the search for the other vision sibling. So I think they could be wanting to get the monks so they could, could one, one of the, they they believe one of the monks is like a vision sibling and they're trying to find the other one. Um, Maybe I misread that. But and you can tell me if I did. No,
0: did I misread? I'm hoping that you that that gets implied. Okay. Last chapter plus this chapter, you're cluing in. Wait, the bad guys are trying to kidnap certain people.
1: Right, and you're trying to pull a pull the a fast one on us because obviously we are meant to think it's about the muskets. But I think that there is something deeper going on. The other clue was that you go into an interlude about two vision siblings before the the big destruction and so i think that was another clue you offered the reader so it, i'm picking up what you're throwing down good awesome. job i really enjoyed it thank you
0: thank you thank you thank you so much
2: yeah yeah really another awesome high pace is this we're not even at the climax of your book right
0: no we're i was i
2: think we're almost halfway because yeah this was like two straight chapters of like high pace, high consequence. Awesome. Um, okay. I'll go to my notes. Uh, oh yeah, I had the same stuff as Jess about the burning projectiles through the sky. Um, the border hedge swimming across like a like jungle water. You're worried about like piranhas or like crocodiles or something like with the way you've set this up in the dark. Uh, oh, the very start. So we have the defections from the, enemy slash friendly like confusing situation camp which I think is super realistic and especially with the enemy slash friendly generals you know having similar claim to legitimacy so I thought that was good and it levels the playing field for our heroes which is important because they're doing a pretty outrageous thing which you mentioned several times and definitely like is driven home. Especially with this, the madness line, the transition, where like this whole plan is madness. And then we go to Miramute, who wasn't in the planning session, and he's swimming through the jungle water <laughs> to, with the rope, and he's like, madness. So like, that was a great transition. I love <laughs> that. You. Um, Jessica, you're the same as Mastem. Always send me to do your dirty work. Uh, Alawid's too scared to. So, so I, I like this that you're criticizing the commanders for staying back or, or going, pushing you forward or whatever. But actually I think you put the commanders exactly where they're supposed to be. Jaska would be with his most important troops with the, with the riflemen. Aloe would be back. Cause he's like basically second in command for Jaska. And, um, and Sathia would be like kind of his battle edge. Like she would, that's where she would be too. She would be up with the front force. So I think they all ended up in the perfect spot. Um, I, I also liked the. So, have we had a Mirmute perspective yet? Nope. No, it's the first one. So, I one hundred percent expected Mirmute to be killed in this, and then when at this point, and then Sathia, when she's jumping onto the ship, I or under the boat, the canal boat, to be taken across. Then I'm like, oh, maybe she's gonna die, and it's gonna be a hit for Mirmute. Like, there's some stake raising purpose to have. Myrmet have his perspective. um, And then uh, we get to well the, there was awesome combat. Also that was clear that you knew how the combat was looking in your head because it was described super well even with Jazka like whatever blindly waving his spear and accidentally cutting the guy's throat and, and saving himself and Myrmet like whatever with his knife out and all mad and and juking back and forth because he's a layered ball player. I thought that was all super cool, um, but then, anyways, all this is happening. I'm like, okay, well, definitely one of, one of them is going to be killed in this. Uh, so that made the like, and and then you have the love story between them, which also enforced that I thought one of them was going to be killed because you can't like complete that kind of love arc without murdering one of them in like a middle of this battle. So I was sure someone was going to be killed. And then you get to your, um, the, the long, I, I got to read the line. Cause it's pretty funny. They held long tubes forward, hollow spears, a caricature of a rage fire musket. Uh, I love that line. And that's when they're, they're held at gunpoint and, and we think all is about to go wrong, but of course they've never tested this before because they've never had rage fire until they kidnapped the monks 20 minutes or an hour ago or whatever and just enough time to get the rage fire back to those muskets to try them. And of course they're going to break and they're hollowed out spears that you're trying to shoot it out of like a, you know, a little shitty copper pipe or something. um, And they don't have, they have no idea how much to put in anyways. Really good chapter. It all came around. Uh, everyone survived, which was almost a twist that they, they survived. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about, the uh the next chapter with the vision siblings because i think i know too much um but i do i if we're on to hot takes now unless you want to
0: if you have any questions before i have some things i want to talk about so okay, let's go ahead. let's talk about those before we go to hot takes uh some of your comments um so i'll do actually pat i'll do your comments because they're fresh in my head and then jess i'll get to yours so pat I kind of realize I haven't really killed anyone yet. And I know that's a, like, at some point I have to raise the stakes and I know like not everyone's going to survive. I know that for sure. And I know already who at least, at least I know more than zero people who are going to die for sure. Um, but I think that this might be a revision problem where I, at this point none of my main characters have died yet and that like you said in a previous podcast Jess, at some point we have to kill our darlings and that may or may not involve actual characters so we'll see uh but i'm not worrying about that right now um and the other thing i was thinking is um pat one thing you just said at one point like you're right, like they they actually they only just like they clearly I wanna wonder if you if both of you realize like if this clicked for both of you. Like the bad guys know about muskets. They know about rage fire, they have tried to make muskets, they just aren't able to test them. And they should this and Aloede says this, like, we shouldn't have won this. And that the bad guy, like General Roy, probably was baiting them into doing this and he was willing to sacrifice a couple of lives to him in order to test his muskets. Was that a possibility in either of your heads? Never considered it. Never considered it. Okay. That means I need to, I need to, I need to write that in more.
1: But like part, like now that you say that it makes sense to me. Like obviously the soldiers were so terribly prepared with those muskets. They hurt themselves. So I think like, okay, you can make things more clear, but it's also fun talking to you about that being like, okay, like that would have been like a cool reveal to me.
2: You could make it the first line of your next chapter. Be like, I don't know. I think maybe he led us to get the monks or whatever.
1: Oh, I'm down. I'm down for that.
0: Uh, Yeah, like that. That's really good.
1: Would you ever do like a perspective from your bad guys?
0: I've, I, um, I actually, that's one change I'm going to make for the end of book one is that at, at the end of book one, I, I and I want in the epilogue, I want there to be a wolot chapter, very short. And I've, and we actually talked about this in, in, in December, um, or January, but, uh, I'm, I don't know. I'm thinking about it. I've thought about it. It's definitely a possibility. Um, oh no, sorry. I'm, I'm also getting ahead of myself. There's for sure going to be a bad guy perspective in this book as well. um my okay so and then jess what you said now this was one thing i was super worried about we talked about this in the twilight cast i'm not familiar with the romance tropes and how to write it but i really kind of i kind of like i think what i've what the the romance between the two characters in my book in my head it grew organically as i was writing the story the first book and so that's i've allowed it to keep living but I'm very concerned at every step that I'm messing it up. So, well,
1: we have to think. Well, first of all, what's great is that it's a secondary plot. So, it doesn't need to be anything more than just adding to the story. But I see several avenues it can go. And one of the big things is what's keeping them apart? Oh, well, they're in the middle of a war. And like duty sometimes has to overcome personal wants and needs. Exactly. So
2: you can't always run up to the front. You know, you're important.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, so and, and you kind of see that conflict like, oh, my God, don't kill her yet. Like, I've only just told her I'm in love with her. Like, that was a line I remember. And I was like, oh, interesting. I think was that a bit of foreshadowing maybe or something along those lines? So I think if you're nervous about it, just remember, like, you do have to kind of keep them apart a little bit until the very end uh but yes no i thought it was good lance don't worry it, I, yeah don't even worry about it it was great
0: awesome i'll take it for a first draft i'll take it that's great and pat what do you think of it believable plausible oh yeah i mean like they were kind of arguing
2: and they're like got a little like will they won't they going on and yeah the timing works out um they they had to work for it. Jazka scolds them, but you know everyone's happy for them. I think it, I think it's good.
0: Okay, awesome. That sounds good. That was one the thing I was the most worried about for the chapter, for sure. So I'm happy to hear that. I
2: I liked it as a tool to like juke us out that she was going to be killed. I assumed that she was going to get killed after they kissed for sure. And then you put her in a position where she should have been killed, so it was good.
0: I think she's too useful to the, to the, I kind of like her as a character. She's, she's a top three character for me. Sathya in the book, maybe, maybe top five. I know she's a super secondary character, but I really like her. Um, so I, I don't know. But if, if I have to kill her off in my edits, I will be a bit more, un, more unhappy than if I've killed to kill Mira Matt. Do you know what's so
1: like, funny? Th- like when you're saying that though, is like, I feel like none of your characters have plot armor to be honest
2: but none of them die. <laughs> she did learn. She was super interested in learning some tactics that I feel mm. that she hasn't used fully yet. So I don't think, I think that is sort of her plot, plot armor, but um, Miramat who has just like, you know, single-handedly run the front line and then turned around to see half of like his friends, you know, didn't make it or whatever. I feel like he, he may maybe his time is up. He, he's done quite well. But you don't have to kill anybody. I mean, I just I thought one of them was going
0: to get killed because of the circumstance. That checks out. See, that's something I didn't think about that any of them should. I you know, kind of like big picture, that probably like a primary or secondary character should have died by now. Um, but it's something I feel you like killed. Um, you, you killed
2: uh, a bunch of people in the first book, like close to Mastem. You killed his brother. Who I think that's you were true. planning to put deeper into the, like, go back and add them in a bit, right, to the beginning. Yeah, the no, book. you're right, and I
0: and that that's an edit I want for the first book is to flesh that out a bit more. So that's that's true, that's true. Fair enough.
2: All right, hot takes.
0: Let's do it. let's
1: do it. I feel like I gave a hot take, but I guess my like art, articulate hot take is. The actual reason why they want to steal monks is because they're looking for a vision sibling. Another hot take I have is that Jazka is going to die. He like, you know, it's happening. Okay, he can't just keep rushing off into battle like that. The guy has nine laps, like I said. (laughs) After
0: like a hundred (laughs) years.
1: After a hundred years. But I like love that. You know, I love like characters that just won't die anyway well, he's gotta <laughs>
2: he's gotta lose the battle and win the war i feel like that's his finale for his arc oh what a great always,
1: trope always,
0: yeah it's perfect
1: yeah i'm into it like gladiator you know
0: literally every single one of his <laughs> viewpoints starts with him saying winning the battle and then like at the end of the page or a page later he's like by losing the war and he thinks it in every yeah. chapter it's all he thinks he's
2: got to switch it he's gonna lose the battle to win the war somehow. That
1: would be poetic justice right there. Um,
2: So my hot take has to do with a certain uh, monk with no accent. I have noticed that came up a couple of times in this chapter. They noticed that he doesn't have an accent, which at first I was like, oh, is this some kind of imposter monk? But the other monks know each other quite well and they would not. There wouldn't be, I don't think, an ability to have an imposter monk. So I'm not 100% sure where I'm going with this, but something's up. Whether he's, uh, I don't know, had contact with the other Vision sibling, no, but it's not, because it's not in right?
0: It's he not. You would know Yirdin. And Yeah, of course. And this is then a mistake for me, because you're. This is not supposed to be anything special. I'll tell uh, you what. I, I I psyched myself out. This is why we do hot takes. This is why we do hot okay. takes. Because I have to. I have to fix this. Um, in the first book, remember the, like for three quarters of the book, the monks are walking across the earth and we just see them checking in at different places. Right. And there's one of them that just is good with languages and it's just him. And that's it. It's nothing. It's not supposed to be anything special. It's just that one guy, but you're right. I make too much of a, yeah, I forgot about that. Well, probably that's, yeah, I think I, I, you're right that I shouldn't have that. I pushed it a little. It's just not necessary and it doesn't add anything. So I think it's got to come out. Then I don't have any hot takes. Okay. Um, Pat, what did you think about Jess's hot take about stealing monks?
2: Uh, because- yeah. I, I don't know if when it was happening, I totally clicked for me um, that they were looking for the vision sibling. I think maybe I considered it, but I didn't, I didn't write it down or anything. Okay. Um, but I'm like, well, I'll, yeah, you'd probably want to take some alive, but I did actually, think about it while it was happening. I'm like, you don't have to take all of them alive. So they could have been killing some of them.
0: Okay. That's one for two is perfect. That means I just sprinkled it enough. But not too much. Yeah, that's what we like. One for two.
1: Yeah, sex is great. But have you ever had a one for two on a writer's podcast? <laughs> <laughs> a one for two. Because it's good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lance! I love it when I can make you laugh. Honestly.
0: <laughs> oh, that was great! Wow.
1: Oh, Maron, honestly, it's been such a day. It's been such a day, but this is a great way to end the day and to read, to read something people are writing and, you know, we're all just doing our best here and, yeah.
2: Well, these, do you cons, have, um...
1: here all week, folks.
2: Do, do you have a game for us, Jess?
1: Oh my God, I am so not prepared. Yes, I I, like I sometimes I do glance at my phone very quickly while we're doing this just to be like, did I find a funny review? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, guys, there's some good. Okay, this is good. I have some good one star reviews. Okay, so for one star reviews with Jess, I'm going to be reading a one star review off of Goodreads. To these gentlemen and they will have to guess which classic novel it is, classic in terms of having been added to the roster of greatest novels ever written. Um so yeah, here we'll start with this one, which is kind of short, but it might give you a good idea of what it is. <laughs> Holy shit. This was so boring. I wanted character. To murder me and put me out of my misery. I didn't like it from the opening page and felt the same way to the very end. Why do I endure such self flagellation, you ask? I did it for the sake of the classic, in air quotes, novel. When will I learn?
0: I know what it is already.
1: (laughs) Okay, let me read this one. This one there being a
0: murderer? That wasn't very specific.
1: Wait. (laughs) Lance knows what it is.
0: I'm just (laughs) kidding. Read. I, oh, okay. I wrote it down, and I'm going to put my pen down. So okay. If I'm right, I have yeah. proof.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: I wrote it down too, but you go first.
1: Okay. No, wait. I have. Uh, I'll read another little paragraph.
2: Okay. Perfect. Because I've noticed.
1: Okay. I feel like a philistine for saying so, but JC, is this a boring book? Why did I censor myself? Jesus Christ! This is a boring book. After the first 50 pages, it's clear that, spoilers for a 150-year-old book, main character is going to get caught or turn himself in. I guess sort of both. In fact, you're all set for the 450 pages of poor people falling into fevers and worrying that others won't perceive them as quality people. For a world classic, it's absurdly badly written. Some of this is probably the translator, but the biggest issue is likely when it was written. It was more in vogue in like the 1800s to write sentences like, slowly, character took out a scented cambric handkerchief and blew his nose with the air of a man of goodwill who had just received some slight affront to his dignity and had firmly resolved to demand an explanation. I freely admit that I've been corrupted by the prose of our era, but that is terrible. You might as well say, Sophia was sad. Which is exactly the kind of declarative, unnuanced description of emotions that dominates this book. I did not encounter a single interesting idea or turn of phrase. Someday I'll tell you how I real, really feel about the title of this book. <laughs> okay, go on. Go on. Tell me what it is.
0: Go ahead. Uh, crime and Punishment? It is Crime and, I'm and Punishment. Guessing, I'm guessing Constance Garnett translation. <laughs>
1: his,
0: his, uh, his did you coming. read it uh like a really long time ago i don't remember who did the translation or anything
1: my husband read crime and punishment and he loved it he still talks about it a lot to this day maybe like there are there are five star reviews on here where people are like
2: yeah i was your, your unable five. to put
1: it down the words flowed from their pages to deep within my heart People like it. Yeah. So, can you just sum up what Crime and Punishment actually is? Because it's kind of like an interesting plot line.
0: uh Poor student kills his landlady, and yeah, I think, this is a long time ago. I read it, and then he is getting he gets interrogated by the detective a bunch. And kind of keeps digging his hole, and then he uh, confesses. And the detective says that he actually didn't have enough evidence, but gives him a lenient sentence of only seven years in in Siberia. I think that's what happens. I'm pretty I, yeah, I but think
1: <laughs> seven years in Siberia is like thirty five years in normal world. So <laughs> <laughs> Siberian years are quite quite a bit longer.
2: It seems pretty escapable Siberia though, eh? A lot of like prominent like communist slash whatever people who were sent to Siberia seem to find their way out of there pretty easily.
1: Interesting.
2: There always seems to be their biography of some anarchist guy who gets into Siberia and then winds up in New York not that long after. (laughs)
1: Like the new episode of Stranger Things. The new season. There's always a way to escape Siberia. Uh,
2: That's all we have for today. Check us out over at patreon.com slash WGBC podcast. And we'll be back next Monday to talk about my book, Milkweed Monarchy. Thank you. And remember to just keep writing.
1: A A friend of mine who is the sweetest school teacher, kindergarten teacher, love her so much. Loves. The show Russia's toughest prisons. I don't know if you've seen it on Netflix. Insane Russian prison man. Anyway, I won't. I won't go on and on about it. But it's just. It's just a very funny contrast to like open her Netflix and it would be like Pride and Prejudice, Emma, Love is Blind, Russia's toughest prisons. You know. Whoa, whoa! Anyway. Let's not
0: lump Love is Blind in with this. Okay, Love is Blind is that was pretty good
1: yeah but lance does it work
2: i don't think that's relevant (laughs) (laughs) that's not what people are watching for it's all the absurdity of love is blind it turns out (laughs) it's not blind
1: i don't know how they can keep that show going in good faith because they're like this works like this is like a a social experiment that works and i'm like it doesn't work
2: you have to trust you have season three trust the process the uh the other one that gets promoted at the end, the one where they bring in couples who one of them wants to get married and one of them ultimatum. isn't ready yet. The ultimatum. Come on. That makes Love is Blind look like a fairy tale. That This other one is like, let's destroy some rocky relationships on television. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, that is not in good faith at all. No,
2: just wanted to watch that. I put a stop. to. I put my foot down. We're not watching that. <laughs>